Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with Listener Mail. That's right. We receive a a great deal of cool listener feedback, and uh, in order to harvest it all this time, our mailbot, Carney, has essentially become an an aquatic humanoid. Right, an aquatic humanoid robot. Now, Carney has been our mailbot for a long time now, and uh, we notice that he has apparently some webbed feet now and uh, some gills, and we're not quite sure what that's all about since he's a robot anyway, but he seems to be trying. He's really trying to get in there, become the aquatic ape that may never have been. I assume that the gills are part of a like a cooling system for um, for all of his hardware, you know? Oh, right. That's yeah. where he chills his CPU. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably what's going on because he doesn't really need to breathe. But I'll tell you what does need to breathe, all of these cool listener mails that we've received. Well, without any further ado, I'd say we jump right in. The water's warm. All right. Uh, this one comes to us from Maria. Maria says, hi, guys. I am from Colombia. And I was just listening to the Aquatic Humanoids podcast, and I just couldn't stop thinking about one of the various native cultures in my country that had a sort of aquatic humanoid in its mythology. The Musca culture uh, had the belief that their shamans were going to become a mix of sacred animals. They became a humanoid with the tail of a fish. Uh, some theories say that the penis was the body part that will become a fishtail, hmm. the head of a jaguar, and some other changes in some sacred parts of the body, making them gods when they pray and make and made rituals. I don't know the complete story, but you may want to take a look at uh, the researchers of this culture and others with a similar myth. And if you ever go to Colombia, you can visit the Museo del Oro uh, or Golden Museum, where you can learn about a lot of cultures and native objects that sustain the myths with humanoids that were believed to be not inferiors but superiors to ordinary humans. I mean, it's kind of hard not to imagine an aquatic humanoid as superior to humans, right? I guess they did it with uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, but <laughs> I don't know. When you think of the abyss, somehow like uh, being under under all that water seems to breed a kind of serenity. Yeah. Well, I would say, again, with, with Creature from the Black Lagoon, there seems to be a lot of uh, a lot of effort goes into making the creature look weak. Yeah. When we have at least one or two scenes that uh, depict just how effective the creature is in its natural habitat I underwater. Say, I will say in the creature movies, the creature is certainly morally superior to the humans that oh, come yes. in and start harassing it. But that's really interesting. I tried to look up some stuff about this uh, – this uh, Muisca idea of the humanoid with the penis be- or the fishtail mm-hmm. coming from the penis or something. I couldn't find anything about this, but I'm going to keep looking. I, I want to know more. This sounds very interesting. All right. It looks like Carney has another bit of, of uh, aquatic humanoid listener mail here that he's brought up from the depths. Right. This is from our listener, Jared. Jared says, hello, Robert and Joe. I just listened to the second part of the aquatic humanoid episode, which I enjoyed, but it did not address one of my primary curiosities on the matter, which is... Why has an aquatic creature not evolved that is a peer in intelligence to humans? This is more of a question of evolutionary intelligence, but the simple question is if humans are the dominant land animal, why is there not a hyper-smart crab that dominates the oceans? Coming from the viewpoint of an intelligent land animal, it would seem like intelligence is one of the most valuable adaptations, so I find it surprising that the trait is not more commonly especially is not more common, especially in animals like turtles that have existed for hundreds of millions of years. It would also surmise that if an animal was physically well adapted to its environment like a turtle, then mental adaptations would be the next priority trait. If you have any thoughts on the matter, I would be curious to hear them. Long story short, how did intelligence evolve and why are humans seemingly unique? Long, long. Yeah, that's just a, that's the simple question we'll tackle next. Uh, <laughs> well, I think one of the most obvious answers that comes to mind is like how much more perfect does, say, a sea turtle need to be? Right. You know, is it is arguably as smart as it needs to be. Evolution is a cheapskate and brains, big, powerful brains are incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. They are, they come with so many downsides. Your brain is 
so energy hungry, it's ridiculous. You need to eat tons of calories to sustain it. It also requires a lot of development time through which you are, you're very vulnerable in your youth because you, you require such a long development period to have the powerful adult brain that you have today. So uh, d- developing a smart brain is a difficult thing to do and you've got to really justify it. Another thing I would say is you bring up the idea of physical adaptations. I would say actually the more physically adapted a creature is, the less intelligent it needs to be. Exactly. I mean, that's what we see with with humans. Uh, Do we have great claws? No. Do we have natural body armor? No. We're not very strong for our body size. The one thing we have is that enormous brain. Yeah. Uh, Everything else is done more efficiently by some other species. I mean, we've talked before about how if you see a hairless great ape like a chimpanzee or gorilla it is it the muscles are hilarious it yeah. is jacked these things are so much stronger than we are and th- they need to be because they're not as intelligent as we are we can get around with less physical strength because we've got these smart workarounds but to more directly address your question I, obviously neither of us knows exactly what is the cause of advanced human intelligence but i'd point to a couple of things i would suspect and those things are Tool use and social dynamics. Mm-hmm. I think those are probably two of the main things that shaped the modern human brain. I, I'm totally welcomed. I would love to hear opposing viewpoints, but I, I think those are things that, that seem pretty practical to me. Now, I think there's tons of evidence that the human brain, the smart human brain is a social brain mm-hmm. that evolved primarily to manage and maintain social relationships, to understand relationships with other members of the group, to understand facial expressions and and nuanced social relationships and reciprocity and status and all these kind of things that we think about in highly advanced, very complicated social animals. Are there other animals underneath the sea that are that have complicated social relationships in that way? Maybe some marine mammals, right? Maybe dolphins? Yes, certainly the marine mammals are the ones that come to mind. And uh, if memory serves, there is an example of uh, of, a, of a dolphin uh, engaging in some form of tool use. Yeah, yeah. I've read about dolphin, like bottlenose dolphins using marine sponges to assist them in foraging for food. Mm-hmm. But then again, the dynamics of tool use, I think we pointed this out actually in part two of the Aquatic Humanoids episode, the dynamics of tool use underwater are going to be a little different than they are above water, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you think about so many of the most primitive early human tools, they appear to be things that were for hitting and throwing, right? Like these hand axes, we don't know exactly what they're for, but these sort of sharpened stones that appear to be able to be held in the hand look like you could use them to hit something or cut at something, maybe for processing animal carcasses. And then, of course, there are also like uh, like spear tips and things like that. I don't know. I mean, is throwing as easy underwater? Maybe. It, I, I don't know. It seems a little bit harder, but uh, I wonder. I wonder if some of just the different physics of resistance and buoyancy and things like that in underwater environments would not allow the same types of tool developing regimes that you could have above water. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, I think we referenced this as well uh, in that episode. We have the past episodes about the about technology and fire uh, in which we, we wonder, like, to what extent could an underwater uh, intelligence, even if they, they got to the point where they had tools, yeah. could they ever have any kind of technology based on fire, living being an, an aquatic organism? That's a very good point. Now, I would say that I think the evolutionary record indicates that, uh, or the, the paleoanthropology record would indicate that human tool use and pretty extreme levels of intelligence were already present before we mastered fire. Right, yeah. But, uh, but I don't know. I mean, you can definitely say that fire was instrumental in creating human technological society and you couldn't create something like that underwater where there is no fire. Right. But I do think that's a really interesting question, Jared, and I would like to come back to that in the future. All right. Uh, Arnie is signaling us now and letting us know that it is time to cover some of the the listener mail we received uh, following our evolution of the anus episode. We got a lot of anusy feedback. That's right. Uh, yeah, that was a, I felt like a really great episode uh, and a lot of people really took it to heart 
uh, they were able to, to sort of re-see the anus or see the anus for the first time. I think it may have been our most popular episode ever on social media, though I wonder if that just has to do with it having a picture of an anus next to it. Yeah, well, it was it was abstract picture of an <laughs> anus. But that was a tough one to pick out art for, I tell you. Right. When you start going on, on Getty uh, images and start trying to find the perfect anus picture, like nobody's taking a photograph of an anus without some sort of an agenda. Right. You've got ulterior motives. Yeah. A lot of like clinical photographs came up having to do with various uh, uh, sexually transmitted diseases and Ugh. whatnot. So it was not a it was or oh, birth defects, too. So it was not a pleasant uh, uh, image quest. Sometimes it's a lot of fun. This one was more frustrating and uh, and occasionally revolting. Well, Robert, I give you credit for finding the most pleasant stock art anus out there. Yeah. Well, thank you. So we, re- we received a number of listener mails. This one comes to us from Nis in Copenhagen. Hi, guys. Just found your podcast a few days ago, and it's really great. There is one fun fact regarding the evolution of the anus episode I would like to share, and which is interesting to both the humorous and the serious spectator's mind. There is an old Chinese curse you'd wish on your most hated antagonists, which goes, quote, I curse your descendants to be born without an asshole for ten generations. <laughs> Sounds funny, but in the light of the facts uh, you laid out in the episode, it seems to be a very nasty thing to wish for. That is a deeply nasty thing. Best and thanks for the good work. Yeah, indeed. Uh, to... to uh, to have the fate of, say, uh, a, a certain species of, spo- of scorpions that we mentioned that uh, right. loses its anus if it ends up jettisoning in its uh, tail mm-hmm. uh, because the anus is on one of the uh, the outer tail segments. It ends up just swelling with uh, poop uh, un- until it eventually dies. However, I, I did do some additional research uh, on that scenario. Yeah. And it turns out that it, it, it kind of – it's not as terrible as it sounds. Okay. Because on one hand, without its stinger – the scorpion is not able to get larger prey. So it's having to depend on smaller prey anyway. Uh-huh. It's not eating as much, and it can still breed. Okay. So so the idea is once you lose your tail, you can't poop, you can't eat as much, so you're really just kind of a breeding missile, like you're trying to spread some genetic material before you die. Yeah, but that's what it was anyway, basically. Yeah. So it doesn't – it ultimately doesn't interfere with the, the the pure functionality of the adult scorpion. Aren't we all just a an unpooping breeding missile? Exactly. Sometimes? Yeah, when you when you get right down to the the heart of the matter, uh, that's all we are. Okay, this one is also about the anus episode from our listener Jason. Jason writes, "Hi, as I was listening to this episode, I was reminded of a poster I remember from the late 1960s. To the best of my memory, it reads: the parts of the body were arguing about who should be in charge. The legs said they should be in charge because they moved the body." The eyes said they should be in charge because they see where the body is going. The brain said it thinks uh, it thinks for the body and it should be in charge. The anus said it should be in charge. The rest of the body parts just laughed. Then the anus stopped working. The legs grew wobbly, the eyes grew dim, and the brain got foggy, and they all agreed to let the anus be in charge. The moral of the story is, if you want to be in charge, just be an asshole. <laughs> Well, it certainly drives home a fact that, that we, we touched on quite a bit in that episode is that uh, for the most part, uh, if the anus is, is working fine, we don't really think about it. Right. But if it's if it's not working fine, it's hard to think about anything else. <laughs> that, of course, isn't you know counting any kind of uh, fetishization uh, or, uh, or or sexual context, which we we basically just didn't have room to discuss. Oh, in yeah. The episode. We, we did get one mail we're not going to read here uh, asking us why we didn't mention sexual pleasure. Uh, not for any particular reason. It just that wasn't the purview of that episode. Right. I mean, it was challenging enough just to fit all of the or, or as much of the evolution and functionality of the anus as possible into the episode mm-hmm. uh, without getting into additional um, uh, dimensions on the topic. But yeah. I mean, but certainly the 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 dimension of pleasure and uh, in the human anus, there is a lot of content out there. I've yeah. I've run across the research before, so uh, I would not be opposed to exploring that or other dimensions of the anus in the future. Uh, but but uh, this this uh, bit of listener mail continues. Oh right, so yeah, Jason says I hope that made it past your content filters. <laughs> it did. On a side note, I have a book recommendation. It is Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny. Ah, I've heard of this one. I. Uh, 
it's actually on my sort of short list because of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because it's, uh, it, it has sort of Eastern elements, as I recall. Oh, okay. I, I had not heard of it. But uh, Jason says, it won the 1968 Hugo Award. It contains subjects you've touched on in the podcast, from palimpsests to various ways of obtaining immortality uh, set in a Hindu-esque world. Plus, there are a few truly grown-worthy puns. And then <laughs> he gives a quote from the book jacket, Earth is long since dead. On a colony planet, a band of men has gained control of technology, made themselves immortal, and now rules the world as the gods of the Hindu pantheon. Only one dares oppose them. He who was once Siddhartha and is now Mahasamatman, binder of demons, lord of light. That sounds great. I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. Where, how's my future in uh, doing movie trailers, Robert? It's pretty, it's, I think it's pretty good, Joe. Yeah. I think it's pretty good. Um, yeah, well, this this is a this book made its way into my lengthy to read list uh, because he does end up invoking the the Hindu uh, pantheon here, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's just so much in our in our our science fiction and our our fantasy that is that is so based on Western motifs and uh, and Western myth cycles that it's it's pleasant to find even uh, like even if it's not perfectly executed to find an example that that actually utilizes other mythologies. Uh, I've mentioned an author on here before, M.A.R. Baker or Bacher. I'm not sure how this particular author pronounces it, but uh, uh, these are interesting books because he creates this kind of far future fantasy scenario that has sci-fi elements, but it's uh, but it's based more on uh, on on eastern models of uh, of of government and mythology it's mm-hmm. a really interesting world he's well worth looking up if uh, if if this at all interests you his first book is the man of gold and you mm-hmm. can find it i think it uh, some of it may be available that that one i think is available on kindle now uh but also it has a fabulous uh, paper bit of paperback art that i think was uh, a michael Whelan, if i'm not mistaken Oh, I just looked it up. It's fantastic. It's got a guy in the foreground who looks like he's wearing sort of a yellow bathrobe holding a crystal ball. Yes. And then there's a guy in the background who looks exactly like the suit the main character wears in Dead Space. Yeah. It's uh, And if you look closely enough, I think you'll find that the protagonist on the cover looks like Jermaine Clement. <laughs> if you um, – like far – this is decades before uh, Flight of the Concords, but and yet there he is. Uh, oh, you know, I'm on another literary note in, entirely. Uh, the story about the uh, the anus uh, vying for control of the body that, of course, reminds me of uh, a segment in William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch. Oh, yeah. I don't know if anyone remembers that. I think it made its way into the Cronenberg film as well, but mm-hmm. it's been a long time since I've seen that. Where uh, similar scenario, the anus is uh, vying for control of the body. You know, I should mention briefly that one other listener got in touch with us about a Ho Chunk legend that is about why the anus is wrinkly and it goes back to this story involving the trickster figure in the in the ho-chunk legends uh and he, basically he gets a burned anus and <laughs> somehow this leads him to create uh the wrinkles that are now in everybody's anus oh wow well, every every great great work of uh, literature has to have a burned anus in it at some point uh I believe oh like in, uh the the miller's tale yeah yeah and the canterbury tales yeah that that store spoiler for the Canterbury Tales, but that ends uh, in a burned anus as well. Okay, one more we should look at real quick about uh, about anuses and especially machines that poop. Uh, I guess we don't have to read this whole one, but we got an email from our listener Steve who mentions an art slash science exhibit at the Mona or Museum of Old and New Art. I was assuming that meant Museum of Nasty Art in Tasmania, Australia. And uh, he says that there is this exhibit called Cloaca by a Belgian artist named Wim or Vim Delvoye. And he says, quote, it was originally unveiled at a museum in Antwerp, but it was later commissioned for specific installation at Mona. The machine is fed twice a day, and over the course of a number of hours, you can witness the food progressing through a series of seven glass containers that contain the appropriate enzymes and chemicals to simulate the human digestive process. And if you time your visit to the room at about 2 p.m., you can witness the smelly climax as the machine defecates through an artificial anus. He sent a video. It's gross. Yes. Well, you know, Cloaca is actually an old favorite uh, of the show. If you go back and listen to some of the older episodes, uh, we definitely uh, we definitely uh, referenced it. 
And it is, if memory serves, uh, he created s- several different versions of the cloaca. So um, there was, I don't know if he had them numbered or lettered or uh, what have you, but I, I do seem to remember there were different incarnations of this this art installation. And, uh, and you know, he, he wasn't the first to tackle this uh, this type of scenario uh, because there was the, the fabulous case of the digesting duck uh, created in the 18th century by Jacques de Vacanson uh, that was uh, labeled at the time as a philosophical toy. It was, um, it was a duck, mechanical duck, that you fed and then it would poop. Mm-hmm. But in this case, however, it, it didn't actually... Um, process the food. Essentially, you'd put grain in one end and then the other end would push out excrement that uh, had been you know, pre-placed. Uh, but still, the, the dream <laughs> of cloaca was present uh, even uh, back then. If it eats like a duck, if it defecates like a duck, it's got to be a philosophical toy. Yeah. I also seem to recall there's a theory that the creator, to, to get back to where nobody thinks about the anus unless, A, you're, you know, um, obsessed with it or b if it's uh if it's failing you in some way uh there is a theory that uh that the artist here or the the the, um, the machine maker here uh that he experienced some sort of um, digestive discomfort and that might have made him fixate on the creation of this device the digesting duck look it up in the meantime we're going to take a quick break and when we come back more listener mail all right, we're back. So uh, it looks like uh, our mailbot is bringing us uh, another listener mail. This one is uh, seems to be drenched in honey and uh, surrounded by swarming bees. Oh, boy. This is from our listener Amy. Amy says, Dear Robert and Joe, I usually skip the vault episodes because I tend to keep up with the podcast as it comes out, but I'm so glad I didn't skip this one. So obviously it's about the Tears of Ray episode. I'm an active Ray worshiper, with my major annual holiday being the Egyptian New Year, or Wep Rompet, the first day of the new year when the sun rises before the star Sirius, usually somewhere between July and August, depending on your location. There is a whole beautiful mythology surrounding Wep Rompet, which I encourage you both to look into because it's a wild ride. But I like to take the day and throw a potluck and share the story of the new year with my friends. As you can imagine, one of the foods we keep on the table is honey. Honey lemon cakes, sliced apples with honey and cinnamon, fresh bread with butter and honey, spiced tea with honey, anything we can think of. Along with everything you mentioned in the podcast, part of the importance is in the color. Kemetics, modern-day practitioners of the ancient Egyptian religion, focus a lot on the symbolism surrounding color, and for Ray, the color and element gold is highly prized and extremely important. Since most of us cannot afford to offer gold, honey, incense, and fire become offerings we can confidently present to Ray. Thank you for always being respectful to people of different beliefs while also discussing facts and science. It's very refreshing, and I appreciate you both for it. Best, Amy. Oh, she also thanks us for pronouncing Ray's name correctly, says it was wonderful to hear. Well, I can't promise we'll pronounce everything else in this email correctly. I hope I said Wep Rompet right. But this is a fascinating listener uh, email. I really wasn't uh, wasn't expecting to hear from no. a modern Ray worshiper. But, uh, never heard. I don't think we've ever heard from a kemeticist before, maybe, but I don't recall. I don't recall it coming up before, no. So. But anyway, I looked up what she said, the Wep Rompet mm-hmm. uh, ceremony. Uh, I have no idea if this practice is traditional or established in ancient Egypt, but I just want to share what I found on a blog post by a modern kemeticist describing what at least that person does for Weperon Pet, which involves the practice of writing all your frustrations and things you want to get rid of on a clay pot. Then you paint the pot red, I guess for the color symbolism that Amy mentioned, and then you spit on the pot and you defile it and smash it to pieces. Huh. So this is like a, a fictional version of the subduing, I believe, of Apophis. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong. But I think you, you subdue this evil deity and sort of get it out. You defile it, you punish it, and destroy it. Wow. You know, you'd think, and maybe this is the case, this would be a holiday that these uh, paint-your-own-pottery places would embrace oh, the yeah. market. You know, hey, it's it's time. Come in. Paint the, paint the, paint these uh, these bits of pottery with your... Uh, with, with sort of your, your emotional antagonists, mm-hmm. and then uh, you can spit on them. Well, I don't know. Yeah, spit on them. At least <laughs> yeah. defile them there in the shop or take them home and defile them. I don't know. I'm not going to tell anybody how to run their pottery business, but it sounds like a great idea to me. Well, again, I don't know how widespread this practice is. It might just be this, you know, this one uh, blog post 
author and and their friends. But I that's don't know. where it begins, right? Uh, a year from now, I want to see it popping up in pottery establishments. And hey, if anybody out there runs a pottery establishment, uh, paint your own pottery, etc., or just a pottery studio, I would I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, on this uh, sacred rite. Get on it, yeah. And speaking of honey, here comes a, a rare piece of physical mail. Right, not even from Carney. Carney is sitting here crying because we got this through the snail mail. Right. And oh, and by the way, if you're wondering how can I send them snail mail, well, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, there's an about section and that will include uh, a physical address to send uh, mail to. But yeah, oh. we we received a physical piece of mail along with some artwork. Yeah. So I'm going to read it to you now. This comes uh, to us from Jen. Love the show. I listen to all the stuffs. Thank you for helping my mind not turn to mush during my years of raising small children. Keep it up, please. Your uh, recent From the Vault episode of Tears of Ray was so fascinating. I love gardening and bees. One of you pointed out that honey is, in fact, bee barf. That's, I think this was you, Joe. It is bee barf. <laughs> it's true. Which, uh, which made me stop in my tracks and crack up. It is bee barf. I painted a watercolor last year with a honey jar with more honest and funny labeling. I also made a modified honey label version for my friends and family who don't like to be reminded of the truth. Ha ha. There are two types of people in the world. Uh, here are copies for you both. I pegged you as bee barf people too. God bless and thanks for all you do. So she sent us a copy of this watercolor she did, and it is a jar of honey with one of those little, what do you call the thing that's a wooden thing with the honeycomb shape on the end that you drizzle the honey off of? I don't know if that even has a name. Oh, yeah, it's a yeah, honey dipper. Oh, okay. Which I have to say, I, I love the appearance of a honey dipper. Oh, yeah. But I, I just find it super messy when I try and use one. Maybe I'm using it incorrectly, but I... Just find the squeezy bear to be the best method. I thought that the honey dipper only existed in Honey Nut Cheerios commercials. <laughs> you thought it was a I... magical wand uh, <laughs> right. used by cartoon bees? Yeah. Just the cartoon bee. That was the only person who had access. But anyway, it's leaning against a jar of honey with like a wooden stopper cork and a bee buzzing around it. And the jar of honey is labeled I would, bee I'm, barf. I am interested on the, the history of the honey dipper because it is it is a highly specialized device. It is a unitasker. It's not good for anything else. Unlike, say, a spoon. A spoon can be used for anything, including your honey. So where did this particular gadget come from? It's also not, you know, it's, it's, if, if you're looking at it from like a manufacturing standpoint or a, a wood maker, a wood craftsman's uh, standpoint, like it's not a, I mean, it's a simple device. It doesn't have any moving parts, but uh -huh. it's, it's also fairly ornate. You'd have to, you know, it, it has these grooves that collect the honey. Kind of like stripes know. on a bee. Well, stripes on a cartoon bee. I don't know if real bees look exactly like that. <laughs> no, not exactly. Their eyes are a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much, Jen, for sharing your art with us. It's very nice. I actually, I took mine home and it's in a little frame. Oh, very nice. All right, we have another listener email. This one comes to us from Jiryu. Quote, I'm an ordained priest in training in the Soto tradition of Zen Buddhism, and I wanted to comment on the recent episode, Meditation Lab, Empathy and Energy. In regards to your comments about Walmart Buddhism, I can't speak for all my Dharma brothers and sisters, but my personal opinion is that pop culture forms of meditation like iPhone apps and secular meditation practices in general are fine if all you're after is a kind of surface-level self-help practice, but it is essential to know that at least in Buddhism, meditation is only one part of an integrated system, a whole life practice known as the Eightfold Noble Path, which is designed to eliminate suffering and lead to spiritual awakening. When you remove the engine from an automobile, the engine still works, but without the rest of the car, you will not be going anywhere. And so I wonder if those who dabble in pop culture meditative practice will eventually grow bored when they find that when there is no context for their experience and either move on to serious practice or ultimately stop practicing. I love your show. It never fails to entertain and sometimes even educate me. Keep up the good work. I really appreciate this email. It's, uh, I think feel like mm -hmm. this is a valid point about the uh, – I like the analogy of re removing the the engine from the auto automobile and the engine still works, but it's not moving the vehicle. Uh, yeah, I definitely appreciate Jerry, you putting it in the context of the the experience of pursuing the entire Eightfold Noble Path. I would say on the other hand – I don't know. He might be underselling a little bit the the way that experiences and practices can be ultimately fulfilling 
uh, even decoupled from their original spiritual or cultural context. I mean, I think about what if a person was trying to achieve some kind of spiritual significance from fasting and it was inspired by the fasting during Ramadan or something. Mm -hmm. And then you might be able to say, well, if you're not going through the entire spiritual practice of Islam, you're not really getting the full experience of the Ramadan fasting. And that's probably true. You're not getting the full spiritual experience that a Muslim would experience while they're doing that. But at the same time, you might be getting some other truly worthwhile experience. I agree. And then, of course, on the, the topic of if one is dabbling in, in uh, sort of pop culture meditative practices uh, about how they'll, they might eventually grow bored uh, or that they'll keep going and explore something deeper. I mean, I, I feel like that's that's going to be the case, right? I mean, it's I think there's a value in something being – uh, sort of the introductory level of uh, of a practice, you know. I mean, then they can keep moving if they want, or if they if they grow bored with it. I mean, who's to say that a more spiritual, more um, even authentic version of the practice would have resonated with them if this uh, shard of it does not? Yeah. But maybe that's just me. Uh, like I say, everyone's mileage may may differ uh, on this. Uh, but but I think that's that's ultimately one of the cool things about. Meditative practices, yogic practices, is that you will find uh, various versions of it. You will find incredibly secular versions of it, incredibly stripped down. You will find uh, spiritual versions that are either, you know, fairly uh, authentic or are sort of spiritual in a new way, that have gone in a new direction that are maybe not as authentic, but present a sort of spiritual model for practitioners to uh, uh, involve themselves in. Yeah, that's totally worth pointing out, is that things that are essentially meditation practices exist in multiple religions Mm -hmm. and outside religion. Yeah, even in hyper-real religions, right? Yeah, Yeah, totally. Okay, we've got a couple of uh, messages coming in about our Don't Drink the Salt Water episode. One was a really great email from our listener, Jess. And she says, hey, guys, I've been listening to Stuff to Blow Your Mind for only a couple of months now, but I really dig it so far. I have an MFA in creative writing and write poetry in my spare time. The topics of your show are rife with inspiration for me. First off, I wanted to share with you a bit of synchronicity. Just a couple of days ago, I was rereading good old Sammy T. Coleridge's (laughs) Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I always say Coleridge. I think it's more sort of Coleridge. But uh, Sammy T. Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. So imagine my delight when I listen to this morning's episode. Just wanted to give you my take on why the poem, though very, very dark, is still considered a romantic poem, besides the fact of the time period and movement in which it was written, which, of course, is the romantic period in English poetry. One of the main themes the poem conveys is finding love of the self and humanity by way of nature, the capital in nature, with its glory and beauty near superseding or even standing in as the concept of God is a very romantic notion. So, if you care to get into it, although the Mariner and his crew go through some very grim ordeals, and yes, everyone except the Greybeard Loon dies... The Mariner grows as a character through an act of deep affection for the remaining natural life around him that he had previously scorned. Right after the entire crew dies, the Mariner moans, Alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. The many men so beautiful, and they all dead did lie, and a thousand, thousand slimy things lived on, and so did I. He is very disturbed that the only remaining living things are himself and all the gross little sea creatures. He reviles these slimy things and himself for bringing this misfortune on the ship, feeling utterly alone with no kinship for the slimy other living things nearby. However, several stanzas later, something really great happens. He starts watching these water snakes swimming on the surface of the water in the moonlight. He observes that they are, in fact, beautiful. He declares... O happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind sate took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. And Jen writes, Aha! He blesses these shining, previously slimy creatures, unaware, in a bursting moment of kinship and love. And of course, this is the moment the albatross, the symbol of guilt, sin, and self-loathing, finally falls from his neck and he is free. If that isn't romantic, I don't know what is. (laughs) 
Of course, there's quite a bit more to the poem, but he is freed from his spiritual burden from that point on. Uh, Jess, I think that's a great insight, and it is true that there is no love greater than the love for sea snakes. <laughs> you know, I just returned from uh, Kauai, uh, and I, I got to see a sea snake oh, while yeah? uh, snorkeling. Yeah, this the the second time I've gotten to see a, a sea snake while while, while snorkeling, and uh, it's always kind of a magical experience to watch them move am- amongst the uh, the rocks or the coral. Did you feel love and kinship? I did, yeah. The the, the sea snake, it was cool. I I got to see this one with my son, and so he he was. Uh, we were in fairly shallow water, so I uh-huh. was able to like hold him, and we we're looking down uh, this time uh, uh, without our snorkels and watching the the, the sea snake move around. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of magical. Wow. Now Jess also later in the email shares a story about a, a sodium deficiency in her family, kind of mirroring the story we talked about in the mm. episode with my friend about sodium deficiency. But uh yeah, I really appreciate the insights on the poem, Jess. I, I I feel that too, the love of the slimy things. It matters, and yes, it is romantic. I agree. This slimy things are great. Uh, <laughs> that's why we cover them all the time on this podcast. Totally. All right, we have another bit of listener mail related to the saltwater episode. This comes from Omir. Omir writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm a longtime listener of the show, and I'm writing uh, to you about your newest episode, Don't Drink the Saltwater. I really enjoyed the episode, as I usually do, and it made me think about different animals that have developed mechanisms to excrete salt from their bodies. I live in Israel, and in the uh, Israeli desert, you can find two species of rodents that can uh, excrete urine with high concentrations of salt. The fat sand rat, or fat jeered, eats mostly the leaves of salty plants like plants from the Atroplex genus. Plants from that genus contain a lot of salt in them. They have a strong salty taste, uh, and the Hebrew name for the Atroplex can only be translated as salty plant or just salty. (laughs) The sand rats have two mechanisms to survive such diet. The first is to rub their paws and their teeth against the salty leaves to excrete some salt crystals from them. The second mechanism is is the rat's ability to excrete urine with 9% salt. The sand rats never drink water in the wild. Less information is available to me about the spiny golden mouse, Uh, but from what I know, it eats mostly the same plants as the sand rat, but the golden mouse adds on that diet with stylomatophora, snails, which are mostly made out of fresh water. Thanks for the great podcast. Looking forward for the next episodes. Well, thanks, Omer. Yeah, yeah, I uh you know I I didn't even think about um the the possibility of there being a particular species uh in the area of Israel, but it but it makes sense. Uh you know, get, uh, when we're talking about um high salt concentrated diets. So that's cool and I just love the idea of of, of a fat sand rat. It's just yeah. such a great uh, name for an organism. Yeah, uh, oh, the scientific name of the fat sand rat is Simamus obesus. <laughs> I like that. Uh, you know, speaking of the desert, uh, it looks like we have another bit of listener mail, and this one is related to another Vault episode that's uh, come out recently uh, about the science of Dune. Oh, okay. Yeah. This one comes to us from Lisa. Hi, Joe and Robert. Thank you for your recent From the Vault episodes on the technology and biology of Frank Herbert's Dune. Uh, recent from the vault sounds contradictory, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I enjoyed them so much. I read the Dune series a long time ago. I think I was around 14 or 15 years old, and it truly did blow my mind. It'll do that. Yeah. The thrill and wonder of discovering the complex world of Dune and all those fabulous concepts that Frank Herbert stuffed into it, it's still a, a vivid memory, and your excellent exposition and expansion of those concepts really brought it all back. I'm 51 now, although sometimes I think I'm still 14 inside, and I'm inspired to go read them again. Well, at least the first few. (laughs) I was known to be a bit of a bookworm when uh, at school and always had a book on the go. Uh, Always a good idea. Uh, I I advise that even today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reading at every opportunity. I recall reading God Emperor of Doom while waiting for a year 10 geography class to start. The teacher noticed and asked me how I found it, to which I replied quite tersely, tedious, which made everyone around me laugh. I don't know why. I wasn't joking, but maybe I need to try it again. Thanks uh, for the hard work you guys put into your podcasts. I love them, and we'll keep listening. Well, thanks so much, Lisa. Yeah. Uh, God Emperor of Dune uh, can be a, a bit tedious. Tedious, uh, yeah. yeah. But but it was rewarding. Like I When I think back on my reading of it, uh, I, I I look back on it fondly. I, I don't 
I don't think, oh, that was a tedious book. I, I, I tend to think, oh, I finally read that book with the cool sandworm uh, human illustration on the front that, that I remembered seeing on the bookshelves as a child. Uh, and it has a, it, it's, it's an entertaining sort of philosophical sci-fi work, I would say. Totally. It's a lot of being yeah. preached at by, uh, by the god emperor himself. Less of an adventure, though. I mean, nothing like a 500-page space sermon, right? Hey, if you're in the mood for it, nothing else will suit. Okay, I think we should look at a couple of emails from our Miasma Theory episode. One is just a quick correction that I really appreciate. Michael writes in saying, In the opening minutes of the Miasma Theory and the Evil Era episode, one of the hosts said that the first outbreak of the Black Death occurred in Europe in the 1340s. That is factually incorrect. The Justinian plagues of the 500s were the first strain of bacteria Yersinia pestis that caused the Black Death nearly a century later. Uh, I think maybe a millennium later. But, uh, yeah, Michael is correct about that. If that is indeed how we put it, that the 1340s outbreak was the first Yersinia pestis outbreak in Europe, that is not actually true. Michael is right. The plague of Justinian is definitely believed to have been caused by Yersinia pestis, and that is backed up by solid DNA evidence from contemporaneous early medieval grave sites. So Michael's right. There was a plague in Europe before the 1340s. A second email about the Miasma Theory episode, Rick writes in with an interesting idea. Rick writes, hey guys, longtime listener of the show, and I really enjoy it. I recently listened to the Miasma Theory episode and kept waiting for radon gas to be discussed. Ah. It's interesting how the obsolete bad air theory actually has some sense of validity when radon gas is considered, as it literally is bad air that emanates from the ground. This poisonous air is actually naturally occurring radioactive gas that seeps up from the ground from the decay of uranium that is hazardous to one's health, i.e. bad air from within the earth. Of course, people in the Middle Ages had no concept of radon gas, but if you take the simple and to our modern senses laughable notion of bad air that comes in the night to make you sick and put it against radon gas, well, it's actually accurate in the plain meaning of this antiquated theory. It is fascinating when people create superstitious, spooky causes for real-world effects and end up accidentally, kinda sorta, getting close to real scientific explanations. Thanks, Rick. And I think that's sort of what that episode was all about. I mean, they were very wrong about the causes, but sort of onto something. All right, here's one that comes to us from Sarah regarding the Tomb of the First Chinese Emperor. Hey, Rob. Hey, Joe. I've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years now, and I love hearing what new and exciting things you talk about each week. This past week's episode on the mausoleum for Shi Huangdi, how I've always been told to write, to write his name, reminded me of a conversation I had with a history teacher I had back in high school. Now, he generally taught U.S. history, but our class was the only world history class uh, he had that year. He was one of those spectacular teachers who could just lecture, and students actually paid attention and learned. He was actually the first person to point me in the direction of anthropology rather than teaching. We were actually discussing World War II at the time, uh, the massacre of Nanking, actually. After class, I was asking him about other tragedies in China for a research paper for English, and he kind of joked about how no one had gone down into the tomb of Shi Huangdi. Mm. Now, I didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but he reminded me of the Terracotta Warriors. Ultimately, renewed my interest in why the warriors were there. I remember that I couldn't find much at the time. It was 2007, and I didn't know about Google Scholar. But I did present a rather interesting theory. Uh, my general idea was that Shi Huangdi was someone to not give up on trying to live forever, even after death. Yep. <laughs> yep, good. that's, that's accurate. Uh, he might have had some shamans or wizards or necromancers bring him back, and he would need a deathless army, hence the Terracotta Warriors. Terracotta is surprisingly more durable than a lot of people tend to think. It made sense to my 17-year-old mind, and it makes sense to my 27-year-old mind, and I hope it makes sense to other people, too. I was very excited to see this episode pop into my queue, and it gave me a reason to finally write to you guys. This subject has always interested me, and I always love to babble about it whenever it's brought up. Not very often, if you were curious. <laughs> While it won't be my area of study when I finally go back to college, I will always love hearing more about it. Thank you for doing another awesome episode. I can't wait to hear what you guys present to us next week. Uh, from a possible future anthropologist, Sarah. Well, that's great to hear, Sarah. Uh, I, I love that. And I don't know, I, I don't know about your theory. That's interesting. So he definitely 
did want to live forever if he could. Mm -hmm. And he definitely was envisioning some kind of afterlife. I don't know about the idea of whether he thought maybe he could be brought back from the dead and would need a deathless army to accompany him. But that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I certainly encourage anyone who listened to that episode and had similar um, thoughts to listen to the Jade Immortality episode uh, that uh, I did with Christian because we talk about a Chinese uh, funeral custom that existed for a while where uh, the the like dead kings and various other important uh, royal figures would be entombed in armor of jade, essentially stone armor. Um, and it gets into we get into the the various um, like religious and superstitious ideas about the protective uh, powers of the stone. Uh, I don't I don't know of any qualities like that that would have been associated with terracotta offhand. Uh, I guess I tend to I, I tend to buy more that idea that this was presented as an alternative to human sacrifice. Yeah, because it makes sense that okay, if I'm dying and going somewhere else. Or becoming some other form after death. Then I need I would, warriors. Yeah, and I need I need warriors. These warriors are great. I want to take them with me, and then it would fall to perhaps a a, a very clever advisor to say, "Well, uh, your lordship, this is a fine plan, uh, but I know of a way <laughs> that we can do this without totally destabilizing the empire uh, after you have passed over." Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's time to take one more quick break. And when we come back, we will read a few more listener mails. All right. We're back. Uh, what have we got? What have we got now? What is Carney bringing forth? Well, Carney is handing out a mail that is waving claws about wildly with uh, scuttling legs up in the air. Ah, crab mail. Another uh, one. Crab mail strikes again. So we got several messages all expressing a similar idea about Carl Sagan and the samurai crabs. This is something there, – there was convergence <laughs> of thoughts from many of our listeners. For example, just one of these expressing this idea, Michelle writes, Hello, Mr. McCormick and Mr. Lab. No need to be so formal, Michelle. But <laughs> yes, uh, glad to hear from you. She says, I just listened to your podcast, Carl Sagan and the Samurai Crabs. Being of an artistic mind, more so than scientific, I kept thinking of a completely backward sort of theory as an explanation for the stunning appearance of the samurai warrior's face on the back of the crab. It's probably ridiculously stupid, but I'm sharing it anyway. It's not ridiculously stupid. Don't feel bad. I'm glad you sent it. So here's her idea. The samurai mask is an extremely stylized depiction of the human face. Is it possible that the artisans designing the mask were familiar with these crabs and based the masks on the patterns of the crabs rather than the other way around? Artists do this all the time, taking designs and inspiration from nature. People see faces anywhere there is symmetry, and these crabs look like very stylized faces. As an artist, it makes more sense to me that some ancient Japanese dude saw one of these crabs and thought that would make a dope mask for a samurai, totally fierce. Well, there you have it. Makes sense to me, but I am fairly dim. Thanks for listening. Love your podcast. Uh, hey, no need to neg yourself on that. Lots of people got in contact with this idea that what if it went the other way around? What mm -hmm. if – People saw – of course, it wouldn't just be the masks. The masks were just one realization of this type of depiction of the samurai face. So there's the samurai face as depicted in medieval Japanese artwork and painting and also on the samurai armor masks and wherever you'd see a samurai's face. And quite a few people echoed that same kind of idea. What if somebody saw the crab and that's what created the faces that looked like that in the various artworks and craft works? Um, I mean, I – think that's possible but then again we're we're sort of seeing a similar thing which is that both of them are stylized depictions of what essentially cues from this very easy to signal face structure right you've got these lobes at the top two of them side by side which look like eyes and then that comes down into some kind of central structure below which mm -hmm. looks like a nose and a mouth uh, and so maybe it really does look like samurai warriors, but if it didn't look like the mask and if it didn't look like the art, it would still look a lot like a face of some kind. Yeah. I also tend to think, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on Japanese armor or, or Japanese medieval art, but I would tend to think if one were going to ad adopt the crab motif mm -hmm. for decorative purposes, you would, you would, you would invoke the full crab. You wouldn't yeah. invoke just the, 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 what may look like a face on the back, but there would be, uh, you know, fancy, um, 
you know, th- there there would be there would be claws and legs as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying there. Also, the fact that these crabs are not particularly fearsome creatures, right? They're mm-hmm. tiny. So I wouldn't necessarily think that somebody would look at a crab like this and think, oh, that's what I've got to make all the samurai in my art and my, in my armor and everything look like. I would think more that there is an artistic, uh, tradition established that has certain types of ways of exaggerating the facial features of a human being. And that this artistic tradition, by coincidence, resembles what's on the backs of the crabs. And I would rate that as more likely, given the stuff we talked about in the episode, than the there being a causative factor going either way. That either the crabs established the faces as depicted in these traditions, or that the faces shaped the crabs through artificial selection. But that's my take. Now, I'm, 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 I am reminded, however, that... There, uh, there was a Japanese pro wrestler who wrestled under the name Gran Naniwa, and uh, he had a mask. Uh, it was kind of a comedic gimmick that he had, but he his his lucha libre style mask uh, looked like a crab, and he would perform uh, moves with the mannerisms of a crab. Whoa! Yeah, so he had this move where he would stand. Whoa. He would be inside the ring, and he'd stand on the middle rope. And then he'd, he'd hold his, uh, his, his arms up and he'd do like a crab walk back and forth on the <laughs> rope. And then he would jump, uh, with like a diving elbow. Oh, that's good. But, that's but his really mask good. definitely invoked the full crab. Robert, I've got a problem because I cannot finish doing this episode. I just want to go watch videos of that. <laughs> it's pretty great. You, you could, you could do far worse than, uh, than, uh, spending a few minutes looking at, uh, at comedic Japanese, uh, pro wrestling. Yeah. Uh, but to clarify, I, I don't think that's a stupid idea. I mean, I think it's good to think in that direction. So all the people who contacted us mm-hmm. with that idea, I think maybe that something like that could be just as likely as the idea of the artificial selection happening the other way. It's just that I think it's a coincidence and that's more likely than either one. Yeah. E- either way, it's it's very scientific thinking to say, well, why that way and not this way? Yeah. And then to explore. That That's always a really good uh, exercise to try out when you're seeing a correlation between things and you're assuming the causation goes one way, entertain the opposite. What if it's going the other way? Yeah. For instance, Grand Naniwa uh, did he do the crab walk because he had the crab mask or did he have the <laughs> crab mask because he did the crab walk? That's a great question. Yeah, we, we may never know the full answer on that one, though. So Michelle and all the others who contacted us with that idea, good thinking. I, I think that's an interesting possibility to consider. Before we leave the topic of Carl Sagan and the samurai crabs, I have to mention that our listener Kevin wants us to make giant mutant crabs. Oh, this is a solution to the, the green crab scenario. I was talking about the invasive green crabs yes. and how we have to go to all of these various uh, kind of technological extremes, or at least we have to contemplate advanced technology to properly process them for culinary purposes. Yeah. So Kevin writes, still in the middle of your podcast about the green crab, considering much of the discussion had to do with possible selective breeding of the samurai crab, I was positive you would suggest that one solution to the invasive green crab problem would be to selectively breed them to be much larger (laughs) and therefore becoming a better food source. Then continue to release these larger crab into the ocean over time as they breed with the smaller green crab. The entire population will grow in size as a more practical source of food. Hmm. Well, uh, I I can see various complications arising <laughs> with that plan. And and also it would be a very it would be a very long form scheme. Yeah. Generally it would take a while to not pay into off that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, changing wild populations for foods for, for food reasons uh, is not always a great idea. Yeah. And also is so that's going to be something somebody would be paying to do. But then everybody who fishes these crabs would benefit from them instead of just the person who did the investment initially. And then also it seems like it might not work because you're dealing with wild conditions and can you keep these populations contained and control them properly? And I don't know. I can see a lot of reasons that people probably aren't going to do that. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, anytime you want to write in to urge us to create giant mutant crabs, you can do that. That's yeah. okay to use our email address that way. Yeah, Joe, Joe is definitely going to notice your email if it includes uh, some discussion of mutant crabs, be they uh, telepathic or not. So thanks, Kevin. All right, here's, uh, here's one of our emails that we received regarding the Proteus Effect episode. Uh, Sky writes in. 
Hey, Robert and Joe, kudos for another great episode. This one felt like it had uh, many strings connecting to other topics that I've looked into, including your episode on the Tetris effect. I can't seem to find a source at the moment, but I've also read an interesting point that notes the difference in perspective while playing role-playing games. There's a subtle difference between I attack the goblin or I tried to jump over the Goomba and Ragnar attacks the goblin or I tried to make Mario jump over the Goomba. Oh, yeah. You know, this reminds me of... Um, Playing video games as uh, like a young rude child, uh, mm-hmm. and some of you may say, say, "Is there any other kind of child that plays a video game but <laughs> a, a rude one?" Uh, but I remember like being interrupted and charging people with you. You made you made me die. You killed me. You killed me. Yes. And I and I do wonder like why did I put it that way? Why didn't I say you made my guy die? Uh-huh. Like Grant, you know, it, what is it? One more syllable to to go that far? And it, and or was I just so connected? to the character that I thought of Mario as myself. It's weird. It, it, it is very weird. <laughs> anyway, Sky continues. Uh, to your open question about the Proteus effect in Werewolf. Oh, yeah. And just to revisit, I think what we said was, does playing a game like Werewolf also change you? Like if you are trying to pretend you're not a werewolf and lying in the game, does that make you more deceptive after the game's over? Right. Uh, so Sky says, I have a recent anecdote that fits right in. Some friends and I were playing Insider recently, uh, which plays similar to Mafia Werewolf, but with a focus on figuring out a secret word a la 20 questions. If you were assigned the Insider role, you know the word the whole time and have to guide the commons toward the right answer without making it obvious you know the word already. By some bizarre string of chance, I ended up playing the Insider for seven out of the nine rounds we played out of eight players. Uh, by the end of the... Sounds like you were cheating. <laughs> the odds on that are not good. <laughs> I mean, it happens though in Werewolf. You see like the person who ends up being a werewolf all night. Yeah. And it, it ends up, you know, it ends up working to their favor because what are the odds right yeah. after a while? Right. By the end of the night, it became a running joke to just assume I was the insider if no one had any good ideas for anyone else, which ended up working. (laughs) For the rest of the night after the game, however, I felt hyper aware of everything I said and double checked my words before I said anything to think about how they might be interpreted. I couldn't help but analyze the complexity of my and others' communications even when we had returned to normal conversation after the game. And this didn't really fade until I went to sleep a few hours later. It was truly exhausting. Thanks again for all you do. Looking forward to the next episode. Well, Sky, that is really interesting. So that's one more example of the way that gameplay mechanics and the type of character you have to be inside a game doesn't just affect you in the moment, but really does follow you home. Uh, It's a question of how long it always lasts and how intense it is. But now that you mention it, I think I have noticed that after playing as a werewolf, I mainly retain a feeling of mischievousness that follows <laughs> me around after the game's over. That's if I've been one of the werewolves. Not so much if I've been a townsperson, but in my experience, this feeling is retained. Robert, what do you think about this? You retain the feeling of mischievousness if you were a werewolf and if the werewolves won. <laughs> like the winning determines the extent to which that feeling carries over after the game. And I wonder how Proteus-like effects are modulated by win-loss dynamics. Like, for example, I know personality manifestation can be controlled by hormones, and hormone levels can apparently be affected by winning and losing. Like, I remember I've read studies about how, uh, like, winning tennis players have elevated testosterone levels compared to losing players. Hmm. You know, it, it's it's interesting the idea of retaining the sense of mischievousness uh, a- after you've played because it, it. I wonder to what extent the framing mechanism works because obviously we're humans playing the werewolf game, so we tend to frame it uh, as a, a struggle between humanity and uh, bloodthirsty monsters. Right. But what if you played it the other way? You like open your eyes, werewolves. You were the last uh, two members of your species, just trying to survive. Yeah, fighting against these bloodthirsty humans, and look how bloodthirsty they are. Right, they're murdering each other just on the suspicion that one of their uh, their 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 fellow villagers might be a werewolf. They deserve to be eaten. Yeah, so like if you frame <laughs> it like that, I wonder how that would frame the way people feel at the end. Would you? Maybe you'd still feel uh, mischievous, but you might feel more like, I don't know, like truly victorious that you've, you, it's not that you've, uh, 
you've you've overcome the odds against a, a, a righteous opponent. You've overcome the odds against the monsters. You are you are the the the, the winning uh, uh, noble player here, and not uh, not the others. Now I probably sound like a werewolf sympathizer now. So anyone playing werewolf with me uh, uh, will likely suspect me right off the bat. Okay, I think we got time for two more short ones. All right. Uh, first one, this comes from Trisha on our Animal Lies episode. Trisha writes, hey guys, loved your most recent episode on Animal Lies. I work in dog training and behavior, and this episode reminded me of a study on dog deception published in the journal called Animal Cognition. It proves that dogs are definitely capable of deception for personal gain. Sneaky little things. Hmm. Uh, here's an article she shares, and she says, for the record, I definitely think you should make Animal Lies a regular feature like Dangerous Food, All the Best, Trish. I just wanted to share this because I looked up the study to see what it was. So, yeah, it was published in Animal Cognition in March 2017. The lead author was Marion Haberlein of uh, the University of Zurich. And here's the short version. So you've got a bunch of dogs and you train the dogs to lead human partners to a container of food on command. So you say, take me to food and the Mm -hmm. dog takes you there. There were multiple containers. There'd be one container that's empty, no food. Another one has a dry biscuit and another one has an awesome sausage. And some human partners of the dogs were – the dogs learned were cooperative, meaning when the dog takes them to food, the human partner would get the food and then give it to the dog. And other human partners were competitive, meaning when the dog showed them where the food was, the human partner would keep the food for themselves. And after the task was done, the dogs learned that they would get a chance to eat whatever treats were left over in the unopened containers. So eventually, can you guess what happened? When the humans would give the command to lead them to food, the dogs would act differently depending on whether you were cooperative or competitive. And if you were one of these competitive humans who did not share the food with the dogs, the dog would answer the take me to food command by leading you to an empty container that had no food in it. Oh, I don't know where the food went. (laughs) So basically, the dogs began to behave like, hey, if you're not going to share, I'm not going to show you where the sausage is. Interesting. Huh. I wonder if, if there are any um, – I wonder how this impacts any use of, uh, of, of the, you know, the various uses of dogs for, say, uh, uh, detection of illicit substances or yeah. explosives or uh, even some of these areas where we're figuring out how to use dogs to de- detect uh, illnesses. Yeah. Like it does kind of change things to know that if you don't have the uh, the parameters uh, laid out correctly, mm-hmm. then you're going to have to deal with dog deception uh, as, right. as, as yeah. part of the uh, the ordeal. Yeah. If the dog if the dog figures out this isn't working out in its favor, it's going to lie to you. Huh. Interesting. All right. We have one last uh, bit of listener mail. This comes to us from Kennedy. Kennedy says, first off, I'd like to say that I love the podcast. I've learned a lot from listening to it, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. It helps me get through long, boring nights at work. A lot of the time, it makes me uncomfortable, though. That sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. There's been a lot of uh, things I've learned on the show that directly contradict the things I was taught when I was younger. Uh, Growing up in a religious household, my parents put a lot more stock into religion than they did science. I'm not religious, and I know that a lot of the stuff uh, they told me was wrong, not because they intentionally misled me, but because they themselves believed what they said. But even when you know things are wrong, it's hard to hear that something you've believed for a large part of your life was wrong. Thank you for bringing all of this information out, and thank you for making me uncomfortable. I hope that as time goes by, I can learn to have a better grasp on how the world really is and outgrow what I was taught when I was younger. Love the show. Thanks for all the fantastic episodes, Kennedy. Well, Kennedy, thanks so much for getting in touch. I'm glad we could play that role for you. I mean, it's one of the hardest things to seek out things that make us uncomfortable, but it's something we should all try to do more, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, we we cover topics on the show that make me uncomfortable. Oh sometimes, yeah, sometimes you know it, uh, and it is part of kind of putting yourself in that uncomfortable state where you're willing to have your preconceived notions, your preconceived beliefs uh, challenged or or even toppled. Yeah, I mean, and it's really easy for us to say that it's a harder thing to actually make yourself do it. You know, mm-hmm. like everybody acknowledges it's good to 
think critically about your ideas. Everybody acknowledges it's good to try to seek out disconfirmation of your biases. But you you sit there and you say that, and then what do you really do? I mean, most of the time you seek confirmation of what you already thought. Right. Uh, and it's just really hard to make yourself do that in the moment. But it's also a very rewarding thing to do that pays off in the long run when you can make yourself do it. I also have to say, in this email, uh, Kennedy talks about things that they were taught that mm-hmm. they now see as uh, as wrong. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to say that, like, certainly there are going to be things where you, you reach a point in life and you look back on something you used to believe and you think, well, that that was incorrect or that yeah. was maybe wrong and, and more of a like a moral or ethical uh, way. Mm-hmm. But I think also in my experience, there are times when I can look back on something that I used to believe and maybe I can still value it. But now I see it from an additional pers- uh, perspective or maybe a, like two additional perspectives. And sometimes it can actually make that that thing more valuable. Yeah, you know, totally. I mean, well, so the example that Kennedy uses in this email is religious beliefs. And I think obviously this being a science podcast, there are going to be a lot of religious like literal interpretations of a lot of religious beliefs that are just going to come come into conflict with science, right? Mm -hmm. If you believe in like a literal six-day creation, like, sorry, science isn't going to help you there. That's Mm going to come into conflict. But also, I don't think inherently that the the nature of our show is necessarily hostile to religion or certainly not hostile to it in all of its interpreted forms, right? Right, yeah. Uh, It's – if you believe in like literal historical facts through your religion, a lot of times, yeah, the scientific approach is going to come into collision with that. But there are also just a lot of ways of being a religious person, of having religious beliefs that tend to not really overlap with the territory of science. Yeah, I always come back to the idea of uh, the the teleological and the causative why. Yeah. You know, one answering uh, like a very like fact-based why am I here and one uh, dealing with a more like the reason for being (laughs) – you know, a, a, a more existential idea of, of, of who I am and why I am here. Yeah. And, and science can answer a lot of those questions, but, but not necessarily all of them, not in a way that maybe is satisfying to an individual. Right. And, uh, I think it's, it, it can be valuable to have, uh, uh religion uh, and or spirituality or, or even mythology to, to fall back on. Uh, that is one thing I always try and stress too with discussions of, of mythology and legend and folklore is that these are stories that did not happen, but they are still stories that have importance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. certainly to the, to the cultures from which they emerged and to other cultures as well that have adopted them. Different, uh, did not literally happen is sort of a different question than is it true or not? Right. Right. Uh, I mean, it's one way of interpreting the word true. Yeah. But, I mean, my bottom line is just to say, again, I, I hope that you don't ever walk away from our show with the idea that, uh, you know, adopting scientific skepticism and all that means that you need to to throw out all of your beliefs and meaning structures and everything like that. I mean, th- that's not a message I want to promote at all. It is uh, the idea that you should critically examine it. And when the facts are in obvious contradiction with beliefs, uh, well, then, yeah, you should – pay attention to the facts. But I hope we never create the false impression that we're trying to create an environment where uh, beliefs, uh, mythology that gives meaning and structure and all that, that all all that needs to get chucked down the drain. That's not what I feel. Yeah. No, me neither. But that being said, if something doesn't bring you peace and happiness, then chunk it out. What's it there for? Yeah. That's my take. All right. Well, on that note, we've uh, reached the end of our listener mail episode. If you would like to send us listener mail well we have a few uh, suggestions of how to go about it first of all we're on social media pretty much all the social medias I think uh, we're on the Facebook the Twitter the Instagram uh, we're still on the Tumblr uh, and you can get in touch with us uh, via all of those websites as well as our homepage the mothership stuff to blow your you'll find links out to all of those uh, different uh, websites as well as all of the podcast episodes and various blog posts thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you'd like to get in touch with us and send us some listener mail that might get read on the show in the future, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.